Welcome everyone uh, with our service this morning. Uh, we'll continue our worship service through the study of God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 4, verse 31 through 44 is where we're going to be today. Luke chapter 4, verse 31 through 44. And uh, I will read the sermon, uh, the text. I'm within the sermon today uh, just because of the length of it. And so, uh, and, um, and for the sake of time today, we have Brother uh, Roger just prayed for us. Uh, I will not uh, open this time with the word of prayer. Uh, we'll just we trust the Lord for the guide and lead now. But as you t- turn to Luke chapter four, verse thirty-one to forty-four, well, we uh, come to this next text. Many followers of Jesus have a particular idea of, of what he was about or who he was, and and that image or that idea of of who Jesus is or what he was about influences those of us as followers of Christ and how we conduct ourselves. Because if we see Jesus as basically being a good moral example for us, then we try to, in a similar way, be live good moral lives as well. If we see him, for instance, as a compassionate healer of the sick and of those who are distressed, then we ourselves might imitate that and want to be compassionate people who help those who go through distress. If we see him as, a, as someone who fought for, for peace and justice, for those who are uh, distressed or those who are oppressed, then we ourselves might imitate him and do the same. In other words, we make the Christian life to be about whatever we believe Jesus was about. If Jesus was about that, we tend to imitate him because we're followers of Christ. We tend to make that what our lives are about. So, as you can imagine, it's absolutely important for us to have an accurate and biblical view of what Jesus was about and who he was. Of course, that is why God has given us his word. And we thank God for his word because it gives us a picture of who Jesus is and what he was about. In our passage today, we get a glimpse of a day in the life of Jesus Christ. Imagine if you could just follow Jesus for one day. Just watch everything he does. Listen to everything he says. How informative that would be about who he was and what, he's, what, he was, what his priorities were. And we get that today in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. It's a day in the life of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Just as, remember, as an outline, chapter 4, verse 14, all the way to chapter 9, verse 50, is this section of Jesus' Galilean ministry. That he, this is the bulk of his ministry is spent in Galilee where he proclaims the gospel. And uh, we see chapter 4 is simply uh, could be understood as a summary of Jesus' early ministry. It's a Jesus, and Luke takes kind of a, a thematic kind of way, approach, and he gives for us two insights into two visits, one to two different towns. One to Nazareth, which we saw in chapter 4, verse 14 to 30, where we learn about what Jesus' message was about. Even though the Nazareth visit, according to some of the other Gospels, is actually in a later, takes place at a later point in Jesus' life and ministry, Luke puts it first because he wants to show us that for Jesus, that this was what he was most, important, most significant about his ministry, that he was about a spirit-empowered teaching of the gospel. That's what his message was. But now we arrive at chapter, uh, the verse 31 to 44 of chapter 4, and we see Jesus' visit to another town in Galilee called Capernaum, a city really. And this would become his ministry headquarters. It gives us a glimpse into Jesus' ministry. Kind of a dated, a one-day look at what kinds of things Jesus was about on his, uh, on, during his ministry on earth. 
So as we study this passage for us today, it gives us a clearer understanding of the priorities of Jesus' ministry. We see what's important to Jesus, and hopefully we see what's important for us as those who follow Christ. And as we consider his priorities, the church can, of Jesus Christ can learn how to prioritize our own ministry in light of Jesus' ministry. As an outline for us today, we're going to see four, four points, four events in a day in the life of Jesus that reflect his priorities in ministry. So four events. We're going to go through these pretty quickly uh, just because of uh, the time that we have left. Four events in the day in the life of Jesus that reflect his priorities. Now the first event that takes place according to verse 31 to 32 that in, in Jesus' day in Capernaum is that he taught with authority. Jesus taught with authority. It says, look at the scriptures with me, chapter 4, verse 31, through 40, 31 to 32. And he came down to Capernaum. It's interesting, you go back to chapter 4, uh, verse 16, he says, and he came to Nazareth. Now he came down to Capernaum. And that's significant because Capernaum is, uh, Nazareth was a, was a town up in the hills, uh, in the mountains of Galilee. It was a small town in the mountains of Galilee. But Capernaum is much lower. Geographically, it's much lower. It's actually down not only at this, by the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, but as far as compared to what sea level is, it's actually below sea level. But he came down to Capernaum. And so here we see this, his, his, his visit to Capernaum. Now, uh, verse 23 of chapter 4 uh, indicated that Jesus had already been to Capernaum before, and he had performed miracles there. And perhaps this was one of those prior times you know, I, I do believe, and it's debated, but I believe this took place before the visit to Nazareth. Now, Capernaum, of course, was a city of Galilee, northwest corner of the Sea of, Gal- of, of, the sea of Galilee. You, you can, the city no longer exists today. It's actually all ruins, but there are some significant, if you've gone to travel to Israel, you would find that there are two significant kind of uh, sites there that are reflected in our passage today. You can actually visit and see that. Nevertheless, Capernaum was, at that time, a city of Galilee. It's a, it was not just a town, but a city. It was a city because it was a major center of commerce in that area. It has significant fishing industry. There was, uh, that's where uh, Jesus would find Peter and Andrew and James and John fishing, uh, part of the fishing industry there. It was also significant for trade because this was on a road that uh, took from, that traveled from Damascus in Syria all the way into, uh, Gal- into Galilee and then into Judea. So it was on a tra- trade route. It was on the a border between uh, uh, Galilee and, and Syria. So uh, it was also interesting that this stood out because there, would be a, there was a Roman outpost here, Roman guards. There was, was a Roman taxing, a taxing booth, that would, a taxing station, if you will, where people would collect customs. And we know that there was a, one famous disciple who was a tax gatherer at this booth and who came to know Christ. We'll, talk, we'll learn about him later. So... But kind of what stands out about this particular city and maybe why Jesus chose the city and almost in a symbolic way is that in those days, uh, Jewish people had nothing to do with Romans, especially Romans, Gentiles, but especially Romans because they were the conquerors. But this city was unique in that there was actually a good relationship between the Romans, the Gentiles, as well with the, the Jewish people. In fact, the, the Roman centurion that led the uh, the uh, uh, the soldiers in the city was so well known, so well thought of that he had, because he had actually helped build the synagogue in this city. Jesus would come here to this town. He would call his disciples from here. 
And he, on this particular occasion, he comes, and just as he always does, he teaches in the synagogue. He would teach on the Sabbath, and we don't find the details, not like uh, the previous uh, text in, in Nazareth, but perhaps a, a similar thing took place. The scroll, he was invited to teach. His scroll was given to him. He read from the scroll, he, and then he spoke truth that would just blew everybody's mind. But just like in Nazareth, we see here the response of the people is the same. It is wonder. It is amazement. Because Jesus teaches like nobody else teaches. His teaching is different. His message was different. Now it was believed in that day that the scribes of those days, their, their teaching was more like, basically, um, more similar to like lawyers today. When lawyers today, they want to arrive at some truth, they want to argue for things, they always will base it upon precedent, based on previous laws, based it upon traditions, things, other decisions. And so the scribes in those days, when they would teach from the, in the book of Moses, they would basically be quoting the traditions. They would quote, Rabbi so-and-so said this, Rabbi so-and-so said this. And so they'd be quoting what other people said about the text. But Jesus' teaching was quite different. He spoke with divine authority. He didn't quote, Rabbi so-and-so, Rabbi so-and-so. He spoke the words of God. He spoke God's truths. His words were convicting and compelling He was not giving traditions or opinions, but truths. He did not preach psychology or sociology or philosophy. He preached theology. Scribes' words were were powerless. They heard it hundreds of times, and it never changed anyone's lives. But his words were powerful. People would hear it once, and they would repent and believe. For why? Because Jesus' words, Jesus' teaching, was no less than spirit-empowered preaching of God's word. In John chapter 7, verse 45 to 46, in fact, when the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest Jesus, these officers, they go to arrest him, but then they come back empty-handed. And they ask him, well, where's Jesus? We sent you to go arrest him. And what do they say? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. They had simply heard what he said, and they said, I cannot arrest this man. I cannot arrest him. No one speaks like him. He speaks with authority, with divine authority. See, in the midst, Jesus, uh, in, in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus was marked by the teaching with authority. That's, his, that's the first thing that he, was, that he always did whenever he would go into the town. But in the midst of teaching, a second event takes place, which we, which we observe here. And this is part of his ministry too. In Jesus' ministry, we find that he casts out a demon. Uh, we don't have this today. We don't uh, go around doing this today, especially in our Western culture. Uh, we're very anti-spiritual and very naturalistic, materialistic worldview. So we don't think about demon possession. But in those days, in this, in this culture, there was demon possession was rampant. And Jesus was cast out demons. But here we see he cast out a particular demon. Verse 33 to 37. Look at the text with me. Chapter 4, verse 33, 37. Now, so he's teaching in the synagogue. There was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice. He, he literally screamed, okay? Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, if you did, if you stood up in the middle of the service and started screaming, I would think you were demon possessed too, probably. 
But that's what this guy does, right? You can imagine, everybody's shocked. This is like respectful. You know, they're listening to the teaching of Moses. You know, someone's seated, he's seated at the teacher. All of a sudden, this man stands up, starts screaming this. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all. And they began talking with one another, saying, what is this message? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality, into the surrounding district. You know, Jesus was teaching this demon-possessed man gets, starts screaming, basically. The demon is obviously distressed. Why is he distressed? Because he doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. He's afraid of Jesus. Underlying this fear, of course, is the is a significant awareness of who Jesus of Nazareth is. He calls him Jesus of Nazareth. He identifies him. There's probably other Jesus in the room, but he calls him Jesus of Nazareth because that's where he was from. He says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And this reflects the truth about Satan and his demons, that they generally have a more accurate theology than a lot of people. There's no Satan, none of the Satans, none of the demons are atheists, okay? They're all theists. They believe in God. They know who Jesus of Nazareth, that he is the Son, Holy One of God. And James 2.19 tells us the demons believe, they understand these truths, and they shudder. It causes them to fear. And that's what happens here. They fear because they know for them there is no salvation. They know for them that one day this Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Son of God, will judge them, will destroy them. And that's why they're asking the question, have you come to destroy us? See, they don't know when. They're not omniscient. But they know that they're going to be destroyed. Is this Jesus' purpose? Has he come to judge the demonic forces? Jesus' response reveals his purpose. His response is to command the demon to be quiet and to come out of the man. He doesn't destroy the demon. He doesn't come out and go to the lake of fire. He could have said that. But he simply casts it out. And the demon obeys, but not before, of course, convulsing. Can you imagine just that? Jesus, we read these stories and we just take it for granted. Can you just imagine that person in the center of the room getting up, screaming, and all of a sudden Jesus says, be quiet, come out. And then he just starts casting himself, throws himself on Leo. You know? <laughs> and then all of a sudden the demon's gone and the man's like, hey, what happened? We would all be shocked astounded because no pastor not even pastor henry has ever cast out a demon from the pulpit right it's just that is how amazing it is when we read it we take it for granted because we're so familiar but this is an amazing thing this is this is awesome here was someone who was demon possessed and jesus cast it out now, the response of the people is again is amazement they had never witnessed anything like and what do they say notice the question they ask what is this message? What is this word? The people have connected the authority and power to cast out demons, this demon, with Jesus' word, with Jesus' teaching. It is they realize that it's his teaching from, from, the, from the word that causes this demon to rise up in, in recognition of, of who he is. Because the demons probably went to the synagogue all the time. You know, they, they regularly go because they want to, you know, 
see, so descend in the, in, the, in the gathering of believers. But up to this time, they've heard nothing that's significant. The scribes just kind of preach their, th- th- you know, another word about. But as soon as Jesus comes, they hear this man, Jesus, now they know this is the Son of God. Only the Son, Jesus, the Son of God would teach like this. And all of a sudden, they're, he's in panic. Are you going to destroy us? Jesus tells them to come out. Jesus' teaching brings us about. In fact, in Mark's parallel, a similar say, they say, what is this? People are saying, a new teaching with authority. After Jesus casts out the demon, the people are amazed. Why? Because the demon's cast out. But this common is that this is teaching with authority. It's not just that this is power, this is authority. No, this is teaching with authority. This is a word with authority. They, can, they are clearly, they understand that Jesus merely speaks and they obey. Jesus has the power over demons and evil forces of this world. And certainly, word then begins to spread about, through the rest of the city, throughout the localities in Galilee, all throughout uh, in Galilee, and then eventually the whole district. Jesus' fame would increase as the word gets out that Jesus' teaching is one with authority and power that commands even unclean spirits, and they come out. But Jesus' miraculous power was just beginning to be displayed. This is the first miracle that, Jesus, that Luke records. And then soon, in that same day, before the day is over, a second miracle takes place. And a third event that we, Luke records for us in verse 38 to 39. Jesus not only cast out a demon, but now he cured a disease. 38 39. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she merely got up and waited on them. That's, now this may not be as astounding as casting out a demon, but this is a significant miracle nevertheless. Upon leaving the synagogue, and if you go to uh, the ruins of Capernaum, you can build it almost like a stone's throw away, is this church. Now there's a church now that they built upon, basically some ruins. And the ruins are basically uh, a, an older kind of uh, church building that they had used the uh, uh, Tradition has that they use the, the, the wall, the, the wood, the, the stones from, the, the, from this house, Simon's house, to build that church, which the, you know, the newer church stands, uh, is built over. And they actually have a glass you know, thing in the floor where you can look down into the ruins. It's kind of significant. Uh, I'm sure some of you have been to Capernaum when you went to Israel. It's pretty neat. At least I can see it all online. Okay. So leaving the synagogue, he has over to Simon's house. Remember the Mark's parallel, Mark parallel, Mark chapter one, reveals that already at this time, Simon's here, Andrew's here, James and John are also with him. So with at least the four of them, uh, most likely maybe Simon Peter's wife is here and Simon Peter's mother-in-law. But Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. You know, and I want to stop right there just because I want to make an aside, just because significantly, uh, this is kind of, when we think about the Roman Catholic Church today, uh, one of the the great struggles with the Roman Catholic Church is their whole problem with uh, their, their their abuse, right? That's going on, the, the priest abuse. And I, I believe part of it is, well, many of them are unregenerate. Part of it is because of this whole idea of celibate priesthood. You know, the, you, you're asking men who have strong, natural desires to basically deny that desire in the service for God, they, they believe. But uh, that is a, and that has created a devastation in the Roman Catholic Church. But think about it. Peter here is, has a mother-in-law, so that means he's married, right? And the Roman Catholic Church de- derives their papal authority from whom? Who do they like to trace all their popes back to? Peter, okay. 
And yet they maintain a tradition of celibate priests when Peter, the very first, at least Pope as far as they're concerned, and I, they're wrong, but uh, was clearly married. You know, I think the Roman Catholic Church, even though I believe it's a, a false church, they would do well. Uh, there's only idea of like celibacy as being a sign of spirituality is wrong. It's wrong. It's not, it's not a sign of any spirituality whatsoever. Back to our story. Simon's mother-in-law has a high-grade fever. Mark tells us, in fact, that she was lying down safe. It's not just like a fever. Oh, I got a little low-grade fever. It's a kind of fever that knocks you out. You're lying down. You're sick. You probably have other symptoms with this. And having seen Jesus' power, the disciples then asked Jesus to help her. Could he help her? Because maybe they're afraid she's going to die. Now, remember, Luke is a medical doctor. He's writing this. He's, this is medical, so he's aware of what, what, how fevers are cured. It must have astonished Luke as he's researching this and recording it down. He's like, man, when you have a fever, what do you do? Oh, well, most commonly today, people say, well, you just got to, you know, it's just your body fighting it off. So you got to just maybe fight, really just resolve the symptoms of it. So they say, well, Jesus, so does Jesus give her medicine? You know, some like, you know, uh, Capernaum ibuprofen or something like that? No, he you know, doesn't. There's not, doesn't, no prescription medicine. Does he give her some kind of like, you know, like a, uh, just a common thing way to kind of make them comfortable. Like, oh, put a wet towel over her head. May take her out into the cool shade. You know, just to cool her down. None of these things. No prescription, no remedy, no therapy, nothing. All he does is he stands over her and he rebukes the fever. That's what he says. He rebukes the fever. He says, fever, get out, maybe, or go, depart. It's kind of like the, when he rebuked the winds and the waves. Waves, be still. Fever, depart. And what do you know? The fever departs. It's gone. The rebuke is uh, the rebuke is actually used back in verse 35 when Jesus rebuked the demon. But the emphasis is, is not to say that the fever was a personal being. I don't believe it was that. Rather, that this is this idea, word of rebuke is that he's basically speaking to it. Jesus' power, once again, is demonstrated through his word. It's the words that Jesus speaks that have power. He spoke and it left her. The fever immediately disappeared. By the way, this is not like the false healers of, of today that you see on television who basically heal people. I can lengthen your leg. <laughs> I can, you know, the people come on stage, they got crutches, and all of a sudden, he, you know, slams them, and then they all they throw away their crutches. They kind of hobble, you know, like this, as if they're actually healed, like, Jesus healed instantaneously and completely. Okay, that, that's, that's not the kind of healing that's going on today. It's, it's all false, by the way. But this was an instantaneous healing. She immediately gets up and she starts making, oh, I'm going to make you my famous soup, fish soup. You know, it's Capernaum, so they've got fish. Or bread. So she starts serving them, diaconel. She starts ministering, being a hostess to them. Jesus, that's how powerful Jesus' word is. He merely speaks to the illness and it goes away. And what we learn, of course, from this story, this particular story, is that Jesus has power over sickness and disease. And the power is found in his word. It's merely he speaks. And that should be no surprise to you and me today. Now, of course, from a, a naturalistic worldview, you're going to hold a naturalistic worldview, materialistic worldview, you're going to say, no, that can't happen. There's no way you can just speak it and people get healed. It's a miracle. But that's how it is with the Lord God, the creator of the universe who merely spoke the world, spoke and the world came into existence out of nothing. 
can speak a word and no disease can stand. Jesus is the Christ. He teaches with authority. He has power over demons. He has power over disease. He had the means now to get everyone's attention and draw large crowds to himself, right? If that was his aim. So what does he do? We arrive at the fourth and final event. We see that he prioritized his purpose. Jesus' ministry, we learn in verses 40 and 41, does take off. It spreads like wildfire about who Jesus is and what he's about, and that he's in Capernaum. While the sun was, verse 40 and 41, look at the text with me. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. That is, at Simon Peter's home. And laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, you are the son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. Now, as the Sabbath comes to an end, uh, this is, you know, the Sabbath day. So they didn't want to do any work beforehand. They, were, they weren't like Jesus who just, you know, would start healing people on the Sabbath. They waited the Sabbath over. They, then they started bringing their sick people to him. Their loved ones who were in their home, who couldn't walk, who were blind. And each and every one, Jesus heals. No matter the disease, Jesus healed it. Jesus, not only do we see his power over disease, but his power over demons also continued. Even as demons, verse 21 says, were coming out of many. And they were shouting, just like earlier, you are the son of God. See, all the demons know who Jesus is. They were created by him. They once served him. They had rebelled against him. They were cast out by him. And they know one day they will be judged by him. And so they they cry, you are the son of God. But a curious thing happens. Jesus rebukes them, casts them out, and then it says, he would not allow them to speak. Verse 41, right? Why? Because they knew him to be the Christ. Now this kind of seems odd to me. If you want to have a a wide ministry, you you want to make sure, no, you you got a market, right? What better market is it than to simply say, I am the Messiah, I'm going to cast out demons. Look, even the demons are now screaming, you're the son of God. He's the holy one of God. He's the Christ. Not bad. I mean, that's, you know, when you can get your enemies to declare the truth about who you are, that is some kind of power. But Jesus would not have it. Specifically because they knew him to be the Christ. Jesus did not want the people around to know from these demons that he was the Christ. And when we say he is the Christ, it means that he is the messianic king, the anointed one. Now, there's a couple of reasons. Luke doesn't give us the reasons here explicitly. Perhaps he just doesn't want the testimony from evil demons. I could get that. Perhaps it wasn't time to be revealed. I believe that, I believe that it's because Jesus understood his purpose and for him to be and for the, and, and his first coming it was not his purpose to be declared as the messianic king before everyone because if, if people knew him to be the messiah and they had a very specific view of him as being a political ruler when that time comes they would have made it wanted to make him king and on one occasion they tried to do that. And, but when, if that happened, then it would force him to, be, to face the opposition from the religious leaders and face the opposition against the Roman authorities before the time for him to die. 
Because he did not come for the purpose of being crowned king at his first coming. He came for the purpose at his first coming to die for our sins. In fact, we'll see this further, this, this idea of Jesus not wanting people to know that he's the Christ in Luke chapter 9, verse 18 to 22. And when we get there, we'll exposit that. But there, Peter simply, Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Peter says, thou art the Christ. But what does Jesus do to them immediately? He says, he warns them to not tell anyone. Even Peter and the disciples to not tell anyone that he was the Christ. But nevertheless, Jesus' popularity was undeniably increasing. We read here that crowds were coming to search for him. They would, if they came to understand that he was the Christ, they would have wanted to crown him king right there and then. But what does he do? How does he respond to this increasing crowds? He could have used it as to, to launch his ministry, have a real powerful message, because they, they knew it's his message that matters. But he goes away to pray. And we learn here, just, to kind of just as a little illustration, that prayer spent with God is always a valuable way of prioritizing one's life. You know, when you're confused, you don't know, you have a lot of things on you. When you spend time with God, when you think about who he is and who you are in relation to him, it really helps to prioritize one's life. That's always true. Anyways, we read then, Jesus prioritizing his life. 42 to 44, our last three verses. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. And the crowds were, were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Jesus, of course, sought close fellowship with God always, with his Father. And with walking closely with God keeps him on purpose. And by the way, that, that's the same for us. You walk closely with God, it keeps you on purpose. But as the crowds then began to want to keep him comparing him, Jesus has to make a choice. Is he going to stay there and, and keep healing people that are coming? If he stayed there, the whole of Israel would have brought their sick and would have brought their demon possessed to him in Capernaum. <laughs> Capernaum would be the largest city on earth by the, uh, in due time because everyone would have heard and gone there. But Jesus prioritizes his purpose. He says, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. He was not sent to cast out demons. He was not sent to cure diseases. He was sent to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Yes, he would cast out demons. Yes, he would cure diseases as a, as a sign of the authority of, of his word. He would do many other miracles. But those were all secondary to his primary purpose. To preach the kingdom of God. He came to proclaim and tell others about how they could enter into the kingdom of God. Think about it. Jesus knew that those from whom he cast out demons would still be under the power of the curse of sin. And those whom he cured of disease would still eventually one day die from the curse of sin. And so Jesus came to preach salvation from sin. Entrance into the kingdom of God through faith in the king. And the king was Jesus himself, the Christ. He was that king. Through faith in him, people would be able to enter into the kingdom of God. And they would be able to enter into God through faith in him because of his first coming to come and die for our sins in place of us 
so that we who deserve God's wrath receive instead God's mercy. Jesus could have been popular through his demon-casting, disease-curing powers, but he prioritized his teaching and preaching. He prioritized that which was his purpose. He knew that what could change lives is not miracles. What changes lives is the message of the gospel. It's why we go out and proclaim the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. I appreciated Brother Aaron's uh, sharing today, reminding us of the power of the gospel, praying that that message of the gospel goes out. But people were coming to Jesus because of their circumstances, because they had illnesses, because they had demons. I want to ask you, why do you follow Jesus? Do you follow him for how he can help you through your circumstances? Do you follow him because of maybe you want him to help you for, with an illness, an addiction, a, a conflict? Perhaps you have a problem in your career or your family or a relationship. Do you follow him for some, because you want some self-help improvement to be more confident, to be more bold? Or do you follow Jesus because you come to realize that he is the king of kings? He is the Lord of lords. In sin, you've realized that you have made yourself king. That's what sin, all of us, when we're born in our sin nature do. We, we ourselves think we're king. We think we need to, we know what's right to how to live our lives. We choose to live our lives whatever way we want. That's why we eventually, as we continue in sin, we start denying that there's a God. Because when there's a God, that means there's someone else who has the right to tell us how to live. We make ourselves king. We're on the throne. As one famous college ministry teach, has taught through their gospel tracts. But what we need is Jesus on the throne of our lives. Jesus the king rightly sitting where he belongs. For he knows what's best. He knows what's good. And when he rules our life, we can have safety and security like nothing else in this world. When we, make, when we, when we live as king of our lives, our lives are hopeless and empty. But when he is our king, we have hope and we have purpose. We understand why we're here on earth. When, we, when it comes when we submit to his lordship and put our trust in him, that's when we become a part of his kingdom. We follow him because he is the king. No matter what we face in this world, we have hope and life that can never be taken away. And that's our hope. That's what, kind of what Revelation 21 reminds us of, as Brother Roger taught us. Well, let me conclude. We've, looked, taken a, we've seen a day in the life of Jesus' ministry. And we've seen how he had done several, many things. He taught with authority. He cast out demons. He cured disease. But when it came down to it, when he, the crowd started rushing to him, Jesus made a choice, a priority. And his priority was to preach and teach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And that should be very informative for you and me. If that's Jesus' priorities, then it should be our priorities. Because Jesus' priorities are our priorities. Why? Because he's our king. 
The church of Jesus Christ can do many good things in this world. And I, and I, and I commend the church, those of you in the church who are doing good things in our world as individuals as well as, as, as groups and as ministries. We can create, come up and create programs to help people fight sinful addictions in their lives. We can build hospital medical programs to help people heal. We can offer hope and assistance to pregnant, single mothers, orphan children, homebound elderly, or those who are without employment. We can provide services that feed, house, assist the helpless, the most helpless in our society. And all are good and worthy causes for the sake of the gospel. But we can never let our commitment to such things diminish or override our greatest priority, which was Jesus' greatest priority, and that was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and to proclaim the king of that kingdom, Jesus Christ. Before you leave today, I want to ask you, is Jesus the king of your life? Is he the king? Is he sitting on the throne? Have you come to recognize that you, in your sin, you made yourself king? And you've repented of that. And you recognize that Jesus needs to be on the, king of your li- on the throne of your life. And if you haven't, do so today. Because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. So that you, he might, so you might have your sins forgiven. That he might enter into your life. Make your life new. Full of purpose. Full of meaning. And understand why you were created on this earth. And if you have acknowledged Jesus as king. If you have acknowledged him as your Lord and Savior then are your priorities or in line with his priorities? Whatever you do in this life, many of us have different jobs, different hats, different callings, different family circumstances. All of us do. And and they're all commendable things that you pursue because God's made you who you are. But whatever you do, it's all for the greater purpose of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. Let's, Let's keep doing that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, this insight into Jesus' day to see the priorities of his ministry. Lord, help us in a similar way to seek after these same priorities, that we make Christ's priorities ours. And though, Lord, we cannot cast out demons nor cure diseases miraculously, Lord, what we can do is the most important thing we can do, and that is to proclaim the life-changing, powerful message of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Lord, help us to to tell others about Jesus the Christ, who is the King. And help us to tell others of how they can know know Him as their Savior and Lord. Tell others of how He died on the cross for their sins. And that they might be delivered, not only from judgment, but that they might have life in a hope. Because they they can be part of your kingdom for all eternity. God, thank you again for this time. May you cause us to each to go out and live our lives for with Christ's priorities first and foremost in us. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.